0: Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Phenomena Nation's podcast. I'm your host, Max Pichette. Today I'm going to be talking about some unsolved murders from throughout time and stuff. But, before I get into it, I'd like to say that if you'd like to order... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Not yet. That comes after what I'm about to say. Um, If you would like to get some rewards... You need to tell your friends about the podcast. Once I get to 4,000 plays... Currently, I'm at 3,509 as a recording. As soon as I get to... To 4,000, I'll release a bonus episode. As soon as I get to... um, 4,500, I'll release a bigger bonus episode. But as soon as I get to 5,000 total plays... I will... Send out a free Phenomena Nation's water bot—not water bottle—a free Phenomena Nation's beer mug. I've mentioned this in my last episode about Stranger Things theories, not Stranger Things. Oh well, yes, but if you'd like a free Phenomena Nation's beer mug, tell your friends about the podcast. Listen to ones, listen to episodes that you've already li- that you haven't listened to yet, and even re-listen to the ones you have. To go over information. And. But as I mentioned before. We're going to be talking about unsolved murders. From throughout time. So right now. I'm going to be talking about the New Orleans Axeman. Axeman. Uh, I'm getting. I'm reading excerpts from the book. World famous unsolved crimes. By Colin and Damon Wilson. Good book actually. Um. If you guys want to hear a full episode about the New Orleans Axeman, get me up to 6,000 total plays. And also, if you don't want to wait till then, um, go over to Blurry Photos Podcast, and they have an episode about the New Orleans Axeman. That's my podcast recommendation for th- this episode. And also, you should wa- watch the movie Crank, with, uh, what's his name, Jason Statham. Anyway, let's get into it. Oh, no, we can't not yet. I forgot. Man, I got to remember stuff. But at the end of every episode from now on, I'm going to put like a 27 uh part from a song that I like at the end of every episode. Not the same song, but uh, you know, just random songs from my playlists that I have. Sometimes I I, I may put an explicit sign for the podcast, like the E because the uh, the song might be explicit, but just so you know. Alright, the New Orleans Axeman. Man. On the morning of May 24th, 1918, an Italian cobbler named Jake Maggio, I believe I'm pronouncing that wrong, was awakened by a groaning sound coming from the next room, when his, where his brother, Joe, slept with his wife. Who's lo- whose wife was he sleeping with, Joe's wife or Jake's wife? Man, if they had, like, uh, <laughs> reality TV back in 1918, whew. Um But as he entered the room, he saw a woman lying on the floor, her head almost severed from her body. Joe lay in bed groaning. Nearby lay a blood-stained axe and a cutthroat razor, which had been used to slash Joe's throat. He died soon after. By the time the police arrived, Jake and his second brother, Andrew, had found how the intruder entered through a panel chiseled out of the back door. Ooh. Jake and Andrew were arrested as suspects, but soon released. On the pavement two streets away, someone had chalked on the pavement. Mrs. Mejio is going to sit up tonight, just like Mrs. Tony. It reminded the police that seven years earlier, there had been four axe murders of Italian grocers, including a Mrs. Tony Chiambra. Probably pronouncing that wrong, too. They had been attributed to the criminal organization, The Black Hand, which was rife in New Orleans. Five weeks after the Maggio killings, a bread delivery man found a back door with a panel chiseled out. What? (laughs) when he knocked when he knocked the, the door was open but when he knocked the door was opened by a man covered in blood <gasps> oh my gosh it was him he was he was a pole named bessemer probably pronouncing that wrong too and inside lay a woman who is who is known as his wife she was still alive and told of being struck by a big white man wielding a hatchet. She died later, and Bessemer was charged with her murder. But that night, the Axeman struck again. What? How could that happen? I thought it was Bessemer. A young married man, Edward Schneider, returned home to find his pregnant wife laying in bed covered in blood. Uh, my- darned cat rushed to the hospital she s- survived and gave birth a week later the attacker seemed to have entered by an open window hmm. five days later a barber named Romano became the next victim his niece heard noises in his bedroom and went in to find him being attacked by a big man wearing a black slouch hat as she screamed the man quote, vanished as-, as if he had wings end quote. A panel had been chipped out of the door. New Orleans was in a panic, reminiscent of what had swept London in the days of Jack the Ripper. There were several false alarms, and one man found an axe and chisel outside his back door on on August thirtieth, nineteen eighteen. A man named Nick Asunto, pronouncing that wrong probably, heard a noise, and he went to investigate. He saw a heavily built man with an axe who fled as he shouted, all New Orleans began taking elaborate precautions against the axe man for the time being, the attack ceased, and the, and the ending of the war in nineteen eighteen gave people other things to think about. but in march nineteen nineteen double numbers, a grocer named Giordano heard screams from a house across the street and found another grocer, Charles Cortimiglia. Cortimiglia. I'm sorry if I'm I'm pronouncing that wrong, too. Unconscious on the floor while his wife, a dead baby in her arms, whoa, killed the baby, sat on the floor with blood streaming from her head. She said she had awakened to see a man attacking her husband with an axe and went and when she snatched up her baby, he killed the child with a blow that struck her. The door panel had, had been chiseled out. Yet, when Mrs. Iglia began to recover, she accused Giordano, the man who had, found her of be- who had found her of being the killer, and although her husband, now also recovering, insisted that this was untrue, Giordano and his son were arrested. Three days after the attack, the local newspaper received a letter signed, quote, the Axeman, end quote, datelined, quote, from hell, unquote, (laughs) as in the case of a Jack the Ripper letter, and declaring that he would be coming to New Orleans next Tuesday at 12.15, but would spare any house playing jazz music. The following Tuesday, the streets of New Orleans rocked with jazz, and the Axeman Quote, Failed to appear. Someone even wrote, "Mysterious," wrote a mysterious, mysterious X-Man jazz. I thought jazz was improv. <laughs> um, well, I think this. I was when I was listening to Blurry Photos podcast. They kind of described this as probably being some sort of hoax, to to get publicity for the newspaper because they didn't have any TV back then. You got your uh, information from the newspaper. And so, because X-Men didn't kill anyone that night, they kind of, because many people neglected the fact that they were supposed to play jazz music, those people um, didn't die. So they so the guys at Blurry Photos Podcast kind of speculated that this could be some sort of uh, publicity stunt by, done by the newspaper. Anyway, Bessemer, who had been in custody since his arrest, was tried and acquitted. But the Giordano's, to everyone's amazement, were found guilty. Although Charles Cortemaglia repeated that they were innocent, and the attacks went on. Although there there was to be only one further death. On August tenth, nineteen nineteen, a grocer named Steve Boca. Chewbacca, Chewbacca! I'm just going to call him Steve Chewbacca, because it's easier. Woke to find a shadowy figure holding an axe beside the bed. When he when he woke again, he was bleeding from a skull wound. <laughs> he managed to stagger down, down to the home of a friend, Frank Ganusa. And the frantic police arrested Genusa, then shamefacedly released him. Ooh, man, those cops... On september second, a druggist named Carlson Carlson heard scratching noises from the back door and fired his revolver through the panel. The intruder fled, leaving behind a chisel. The next day de- the next day, neighbors found nineteen year old Sarah Lauman unconscious. She had been attacked with an axe and three teeth knocked out. She could remember nothing when she recovered. Ooh, that's not very good. The last attack was on a grocer named Mike Pepitone. I think uh, excuse me, his wife, in a separate bedroom, heard sounds of a struggle and entered his room to see a man vanishing. Her husband had been killed with an axe blow so violent that it splattered blood up against the wall again. A chiseled door panel revealed how the axeman had gained, gained entry. When the mur- then the murder ceased the Giordano's were finally released when Mrs. Cortimiglia confessed that she had lied because she hated them. Nice. What a class act. Now, she said her husband had left her and she had smallpox. Saint Joseph had appeared to her and told her to confess. The Giordano's were released. But Mrs. Pepitone, widow of the last victim, was not to enter the story again. Was to... Was... Was to... Not... Was not to. On d- December seventh, 1920, in L.A., she had shot and killed a man named Joseph Mumphrey, Mumphrey, from New Orleans, in the street. She claimed he was the Axeman. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but released after three. Was Mumphrey the Axeman? He... He could well have been. He... He had been released from prison just before the nineteen eleven murders. Then sent back for the next seven years. Released again just before the fir- and just before the first of the nineteen eighteen murders. Just released. He had been back in prison during the lull between August eighteenth and um, August nineteen eighteen and March nineteen nineteen, when they began again. He he left New Orleans shortly after the murders of Mike Pepitone. What was this? Mur- what was this murder? V- murder? V- Almost certainly he was a sadist who wanted to attack women, not men. I don't see how that's possible. I don't see. I don't see that. Joe Maggio was left alive. His wife was killed. Bessemer was only knocked unconscious. His attractive wife died of her injuries. Many of the later victims were women and it seemed likely that he attacked the men in search of women victims. Um, why Italian grocers? In fact, many of the victims were not Italians, but all kept small shops. The small shop is a place where an attractive wife can be seen serving behind the counter. Mrs. Pepitone never revealed how she tracked down Mumphrey, but it seemed likely that she was... That he was a customer, and she recognized him and followed his trail to to L.A. Well, you see, I, it probably could be it could have been Mumfer, Mumfrey, Mumfer, Mumfer. I have no doubt that it could have been. If it was, if the evidence is there, man. He was out of, he was in jail, out of jail, in jail, out of jail. The murder started when he got out of jail. Went when he went to jail the murders stopped when he came back out of jail the murders began again the evidence is there but why did she it didn't it doesn't say why um she got released the the chick who killed mr mumfer why she got released out, out of jail for th- 3 years before not sure why probably probably they probably explained it on other podcasts i'm not sure but, probably could have been Mumfer. I'm gonna be honest. If it if it was Mumfer, well <laughs> then, man, that guy's messed up. He killed a bunch of people. Slots, you know. But, I guess, you know, maybe we'll never know. Maybe it wasn't Mumfer. Maybe he was just a criminal, and the timing is wrong. But, there. What I did notice though that there were some differences in the stories. some of them mentioned being attacked with a club and not an axe, and some of them and the very first one we we uh we talked about used a razor probably that was probably just an insignificant thing that I noticed, but you know some sometimes he came in through a window, sometimes he vanished. And I think we can conclude that the letter sent into the paper was a hoax. Publicity. But anyway, that was that. And I'm going to take a little break before I get into the next murder and then maybe a third one. But anyway, yeah, that was the Axeman of New Orleans. And we're back. We're gonna... I got a second murder. A murder. This is a... This is the second one. This one is called Wrongful Arrest. You'll see why. In 1930, an American actor named Philip Drew came close to being hanged for a murder he did not commit. That's it. We're done. What is... Oh. What? Okay. Um... At 6.15 on the evening of Saturday, June 22, 1929, Mrs. Annie Oliver returned to the the tobacconist's shop where she had left her husband, Alfred Oliver, serving a customer. customer. She found him dying behind the counter. And when she asked him what had happened, he said, My dear, I do not know. He died 24 hours later. Well, lived another day. There were no clues, and two months later, the investigation had dragged to a halt. Then, in August, Chief Constable Thomas Burroughs was having a drink in the Wellington Club opposite the Royal County Theater, when another member commented to him, That chap you're looking for is Yale Drew, the actor fellow who's in The Monster. Gave him an Irish accent. Drew was arrested in Nottingham. Nottingham. Where his company was acting. Where, where his company was, was acting. And a pair of his trousers, apparently bloodstained, was taken away. Don't take away his clothes, man. We're in public. <sighs> um, a woman who had been standing near Oliver's shop in Cross Street insisted she had seen drew wiping blood from his face shortly after the time of the murder drew insisted that he did not even know where cross street was when another witness said that they had heard him say he was going to cross street to get a newspaper drew insisted that he had said that he was going across the street to get a newspaper two witnesses say two witnesses who said they had seen him near the shop where were taken to Nottingham to pick out Miss to pick out Drew as he walked along the street. Both of them did so, but then Drew was extremely well known in Reading. Reading, sorry, I should not know this because Nirvana, my favorite band, played live in Reading, I think. The- I think it's Reading, but I know they played there, so this proved nothing. The inquest, which was in effect, Dale Yale. Yell- Philip Yale Drew's murder trial opened on October 9th, 1929 in the small town hall. It was obvious that the evidence against Drew was entirely circumstantial. (laughs) People who claimed they had seen him or someone like him near the scene of the murder. People who claimed to have seen him or someone like him near the scene of the murder. That doesn't make sense. But things began to swing in Drew's favor when a butcher's assistant named Alfred well- Wells came to give his evidence. He had for- he had formerly told the police that on the day of the murder he had seen a man resembling Drew in Cross Street, a man who carried a raincoat across his shoulder as Drew did. But when it- but when a-, a journalist became became Bernard Bernard, named Bre- Bernard O'Donnell, introduced Wells to Drew. Wells immediately said that this was not the man he had seen. He had spoken to him, and the man had a North Country accent. Like, Canadian? Canadian, eh? That's... That's not even close. Canadian, bud. How's it going? You gonna... Uh, we're gonna go drink some... Drink some bears and, uh... You know, bud. Uh, where was that? <laughs> He declared that, the, that he had told the police that the man he had seen was not Drew. The police denied this. Oh, what? who's that? Oh, my Gurp. I'm um, sorry. That was just someone in my recording studio showing me something. That was pretty cool. Thank you. Thank you, person. 14. Yes, I get it. Um, the police denied this and then were forced to withdraw their denial... When Wells' statement was found among a pile of papers, the jury brought in a verdict of murder, murder by persons or persons unknown, that drew walked out of the court a free man. The solution to the mystery almost certainly lies in the fact that Saturday, June twelfth, twenty-second, was always referred to in Reading as Black Saturday, because. It was the day that the town was invaded by race gangs attracted by the annual Ascot. Ooh. Um. He said Ascot. Yeah, I know. And Windsor race meetings. It seemed more likely that the unknown killer of Alfred Oliver was a, uh, among these louts and roughs, rather than a well known actor with two bank accounts, both in credit. Well. See. Obviously, Philip Yale Drew, never heard of him. Apparently he's, like, famous or something. But, um, I never heard of him. And so it was, so, they had one person say that they didn't see him. And so that's what they, and that's who they believed. Blah, 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 he was uncharged, he is now, he was a free man, he's probably dead now. But, um, one, uh, he's probably dead now. Almost definitely. Oh, yeah, he's dead. But, um, so, they took one man's word. He, he's, he's, uh, not guilty. But who did? Because they said invaded by race gangs. So, they, so now... The murder is believed to be by someone from that from those gangs. Wow, that was cool now I know that was easy anyway. yep, I gotta take another break. Don't worry, it'll be quick and now on to our final murder of the evening the uh the shock arm murders uh. Australia. hey Australia, mate. Okay. On the morning of April 18th, 1935, two Sydney fishermen finally subdued a 14-foot tiger shark. The beast had been thrashing at the end of the line for most of the night, desperate to disentangle itself. The bait had been set out the previous evening and had soon attracted a small shark. This more suitable catch had itself, that, the this more suitable catch had itself then brought the attentions of a more bigger tiger shark. Soon, only the head of the small shark remained, and it was, <laughs> and it, and it was the interloper that struggled on the line. <laughs> the interloper, <laughs> that's my new favorite word. It used to be moist, now it's interloper. The shark was put on display at the Co- coogie Koogie Aquarium, where it proved to be a popular attraction. Popular. On april twenty fifth, however, on an, Austra- an Australian public an Australian public holiday, people flocked to the aquarium to see the new exhibit. Since being caught, the shark's health had been had deteriorated. Um, requiring extra oxygen to be pumped into the water. To the crowd, the shark only seemed tired, and also seemed lit listless, flicking itself up and down its shark tank, flicking itself up and down the shark tank as if in a trance. Suddenly, as if the crowd as the crowd watched, it spiraled round itself three times, vomiting black oily clouds into the water. The foul mask cleared a human arm, trailing a length of rope tied around its waist. Floated to the surface. It all floated to the surface. It's disgusting. When the police arrived, they carefully filtered the rest of the shark's vomit for human body parts. The shark itself was killed and slid open but nothing further was found. The least sinister explanation was the first to be considered. The arm belonged to a suicide. What?! How could you get suicide out of this? Well, well, I guess it's possible, but, like, I think it'd be more, um, probable that someone just went f- swimming and died, cause uh, and got eaten by a shark, because tiger sharks, I believe, are the most aggressive sharks. But anyway, let us get back. Mysteriously, the shark had failed to even semi-digest the arm. Indeed, it was in such good condition that the police were able to scalpel off the fingerprints and check them against records. A good match was found. A man called James Smith. Might as well just call him John Doe. Smith, variously described as a builder, an engineer, a road laborer, and a bookie, had a string of minor convictions where the police contact when the police contacted his wife, they were told that they had, that he had disappeared on April eighth. That's a long time for an arm to be in someone's body to be in a shark's body should have it should have digested but on April 8th, saying that he was going fishing with a friend. Unfortunately, he had neglected to name the friend. Mrs. Smith identified the arm by a small tattoo just above the wrist, depicting two men boxing. She told police that her husband had committed suicide. Wow. Well, maybe that's where it came from. Anyway, the conclusion was was being reached at the time by Dr. Victor Copelson. Copelson, an expert on shark bites, who had been called in to examining examine the, the severing room wound on Smith's arm. It was obvious to Copelson, Kopel, Kopel, I think, due to the clean appearance of the wound that the arm had been cut off with a knife, not bitten or torn off by a shark. Someone had prepared the tiger shark's meal. <gasps> Do I got a sound effect for, oh, um, I got a laughter, I got a dog barking, this one. That's good, now. <laughs> <laughs> Laughing at a dead person, that's not nice. Okay, he also, saw, he's also solved the mystery of why the arm was undigested. The shark had been sent into shock by its long struggle against the line. Its digestive system had reached the tiger shark third hand. (gasps) Whoa. Severed by an unknown human, the arm had been originally eaten by the smaller shark. In eating it, the tiger shark had also unwittingly unwittingly eaten the arm. But how do you... I mean... do, Do you cut off people's arms with knives? (laughs) But, um, I'd say you do it with, like, a saw, or, or like, a chainsaw, or something, or, like, whatever. But, anyway. The police were now investigating a murder. They immediately set out, set about dragging the bay for the remainder of Smith's body. Meanwhile, inquiries had turned up. Turned up the nature of Smith's late last job. He'd been hired to guard and run a powerful motor launch called Pathfinder. They gave police an insight into possible motive for the murder. in In nineteen thirty, uh, Sydney, it was a violent city. Then there was a large criminal underworld controlling the flow of refined opium the east to America, from the east to America, OOPIUM, tripping balls. (laughs) Um, Ships sailing directly from the far east to America's west coast were thoroughly searched by coast guards. However, with ships from Australia, the authorities were more, were more lax. (laughs) Like poop lax. (laughs) Yeah, The, thus, at Sydney, motor launches would transfer the opium, the opium, from far eastern to American-bound ships, under the cover of night. Many men made fortunes on this contraband trade. These men would hire poor, la- poor laborers to run their launches, <laughs> promising a small sum if they were if they were imprisoned. Competition was fierce leading an effort to a gang war situation. Rivals' boats were sunk, and murder of of the hired help was common. Taking the next logical step, police traced Pathfinder and tried to contact its owner. They discovered that Pathfinder had been sunk at the beginning of April. Its owner was a Mr. Reginald Holmes, a boat builder and launch proprietor who it was rumored, was an important figure on the narcotic scene. When arrived, Holmes seemed agitated, distancing himself from the crime by claiming that both he and Smith had never blackma- had been blackmailed by rival launch proprietor, Patrick Brady. Even since the sinking of Pathfinder, the basis of this alleged blackmail was never made public, but seems to but seems likely to have entered around op- opium dealing it It was to see Brady Holmes claimed that Smith had set out on eight April on April eight from this point, the police's investigation became a catalogue of misjudgment. They took the precaution of arresting Brady on a trumped up bureaucratic charge to prevent his flight Holmes for no explicable reason was left without any police supervision. It seems clear that the Sydney police chronically underestimated the violence of its criminal element while searching Brady's beach hut police noticed many se- many mysterious absences several the mattress off the bed was gone. As had a tiny tin trunk. Or maybe it was a big tin trunk. I don't know. Just said tin trunk. Three mats and a coil of rope were missing from Beatty's boat. Police invited Sir Sidney Smith. Sir Sidney Smith. The great forensic scientist. Who was at the time attending a conference in the city. To suggest how the disposal of the body was achieved. He obliged with a neat and plausible model. Well, at least he was neat and plausible. The body had been dismembered on the mats and the mattress, and the resulting pieces stuffed into the trunk. The body could not be completely contained, however. So, the arm was tied to the trunk with a rope, and with the bloody mats thrown into the sea, the trunk sank to the bottom, but the arm worked loose eventually to be eaten by the small shark and then eaten by the big shark. Unfortunately, the police would soon have more to explain. Soon after Brady's arrest, a motor launch was seen to be zigzagging at a dangerous speed all around the bay. Police who tried to flag the boat down had to swerve to avoid being rammed. A long chase requiring half a dozen police boats eventually cornered the launch. At the controls... With Reginald Holmes, smelling strongly of alcohol and bleeding heavily from a bullet wound in his head. Wow. Well, that's nice. Here. <laughs> Air- <coughs> Laugh sound. <laughs> right on um, he claimed that as he left his home that morning, a gunman had tried to kill him. Holmes had succeeded in escaping by fleeing to his launch. He had tried to escape the police because he thought they, they were gunmen too. Likely story. Huh. Whether police believed Holmes' story, or whether they accepted the altogether more likely explanation that they had stumbled upon a failed suicide attempt, they seemed to have had a grievous lack of foresight. Either situation would necessitate... Police surveillance. Holmes. Was after all. Their key witness against Brady. Who was their only suspect. During his stay. In hospital. Holmes told the police. That he was sure Brady had killed Smith. 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 He had said that Br- He said that Brady had told him as such. And warned him that if he told the police. Brady or his friends would kill him. Amazingly. After he had discharged from the hospital, Holmes received no police protection. What a dick move. God dang police. On the morning of the inquest, Holmes was found dead in his car. Shot through the chest and... And the dick. Oof. Oof. Deprived of their only witness, police were dealt another blow when... when the coroner refused to accept Smith's arm as a token of his death. Without a body, murder is extremely difficult to prove. The Sid- the Sydney police had no real evidence without Holmes. Thus Brady was released, two, two associates of Brady were arrested for the murder of Holmes, also walked free due to insufficient ed- evidence. So they shoot him in the chest, the dick, and the head. And then they just walk free. Yep. Man. Rumors persist that it was in fact Holmes who dismembered Jim Smith, afterwards paying Brady to take the prison sentence. All that is certain is that through police incompetence, the case remains officially unsolved. Too many laugh sounds. Oh, well. I'm taking that away. <laughs> Studio bum. But anyway, so that story... God dang, police are not... They're supposed to give him protection. They're supposed to give... Ah! Holmes protection. But instead, he got shot in the dick. He got shot in the head. The schlong. His chest. In the pee-pee. And you know, he died, lost their witness, and now the murder of Mr. Smith will never be solved. It was me. I did it. <laughs> Ow! Uh oh! Better get out of here. Uh oh! Better get out of here. But yeah, I uh, is probably. I bet you it was Brady and his thugs that killed Holmes. And it- Watson. Holmes and Watson, yes. And, yeah. And, I bet you they killed Smith, too. Mr. Smith. But, anyway, thank you for listening to Phenomena Nation's podcast. No one really liked Mr. Smith. I hope you learned something today about... Um, unsolved murders, and how police are very incompetent most of the time. They almost hung a dude for something he didn't do, um... Couldn't find the Man of New Orleans. And they couldn't find the Axe... The... Not the Axe. The Shark Murderer. The Murders of Sharks. And... Yes. And, um... I guess... We'll never know who did all these crimes. It was Jerry. Yes, it was Jerry. And Mumfer! Who that? He was the guy who killed someone. Uh-oh. And, um... So, anyway, thank you for listening to Phenomena Nation's podcast. I You're wa- welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was your host, Blaze... No, no, I'm not. I was I- your host. <laughs> I was your host, Max Bichette. Um Anyway. Oh, yeah. 4,000 plays. If I get up to 4,000 plays, uh, bonus episode, 4,500. Bonus episode, 5,000. Free mug to... Um, more on that once I hit 5,000. So, remember, tell your friends, listen to episodes you haven't listened to, listen to the ones you have listened to again, and if, you, if you'd like a Phenomena Nation's mug, cup, water bottle, sunglasses maybe, um just, you know, email me and I'll get you some stuff. As long as you pay me. So anyway... Thank you for listening to Phenomena Nation's podcast, and listen to the next episode.